Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Welcome to Making Data Simple podcast. Let me start by saying this. Now we're well into 2021. You know, much of 2020 lingers, but now it's cold as hell. Uh, I'm in Kansas City and it's 30 degrees. It's been like negative for I can't tell you how long. So hopefully, Jeff, the power will stay on <laughs> while we're doing this podcast because there's been rolling power outages. Oof. But uh, just another thing to add to the list over the next last uh, year, year and a half. How are you, Jeff? Welcome to the podcast. Al, great to be here. Huge fan of the podcast. Thrilled to finally <laughs> get to talk to you. My God, really, it has been a trying 14 months. We're recording today with Jeff Richardson. He's got a history of database, data, information management, and he's now the chief information officer at Accelerated Enrollment Solutions. So please introduce yourself. Give us a little bit of your background. 17 years in the data, big data, analytics, and technology space. I am two months into my hopefully very long tenure now at AES. Uh, taking on a role that's technology and data oriented. And before that, I spent 17 and a half years at a company called Bentley Systems, which was a CAD company based outside of Philadelphia uh, that made infrastructure software. So heavily data-driven, heavily invested in infrastructure to build software used by millions of engineers. That was my passion for the last decade or so, was building out that infrastructure, the technology around tracking telemetry and then turning that into commercialized um, programs for the company. And then recently, like I said, two months ago, you know, 2020 wasn't weird enough. I thought I'd throw in a big change. Shifted over to AES, which is a subsidiary of a larger CRO called PPD. We deal in the, um, the pharma space, the clinical space, clinical trials. AES focuses on enrolling patients in phase two and phase three clinical trials. You can imagine a lot of 2020 was uh, spent enrolling people in COVID trials around mm. the world. So we ran quite a few of the larger COVID trials, and we do lots of general medicine trials for all kinds of uh, therapeutics that you might you know, be familiar with around everything that you do, any kind of illness. So how long have you been at Accelerated Enrollment Systems? AES, yeah. So for two months now. Two months? Nine weeks. I was stalking you earlier. You probably didn't know it, but I was stalking you earlier, and I uh, saw that you uh, you were the CDO of Bentley Systems, but for 17 years, there must have been uh, a reason for the switch. Are you willing to share? Oh yeah, absolutely. So it was all positive reasons. One, I felt like I was gathering quite a bit of moss in the role that I was in. 17 years at one company is a very long time. And I mean, it is a great company, very family oriented, great work-life balance. They had a hugely successful IPO in September, very positive all around there. I think being at in quarantine, stuck at home for so long in 2020, I kind of got itchy, just feet, fingers looking at job boards and things. I think I poked some recruiter accidentally through some job board, and then they came back at me about this position. Hearing about the company, hearing about the vision, the role, the scope, and what they do in the broader like trial world was just fascinating, and I had to jump at the opportunity. Are you no longer working from home then? Found your way back to the office with AES or what? We are fully remote. Well, for our back office staff and our anything that's not our site staff at the sites that we have around the world, everyone is remote. Um, our main offices are essentially 
closed. Will you go back into an office once it's, things are back to normal, if they ever get back to normal? I don't know what normal is going to be anymore. If you'd asked me that like seven months ago, I would have said, of course, like we'll be back in the office. Like everything will be like it was and we'll have great lunches and it'll be delightful. <laughs> um, I don't think that's the future of work and certainly not technology work anymore. We may have an office in the future and I may go there at some point in the future, but it certainly won't be with regularity. What is the company vision that attracted you? For AES, our main goal and, and PPD's goal is to bring therapeutics to people faster. AES's goal is to get people into trials and make trials more successful as fast as possible in, in, with the best possible outcomes. Think of COVID trials, and I, I never really understood the complexity of this, but how do you make sure that of the dozens of trials that are going on around the world, that you get the right mix of people to make those trials you know, biostatistically sound, right? They have the right mix of people, both in age cohorts, in demographics of all different kinds, right? How do you make that happen, right? There's a huge complexity there. And your typical pharmaceutical companies aren't very, very good at that. So they leverage outside organizations to help them optimize that. One of our core competencies is getting people into those trials as quickly as possible with very good results. So when you reached out, uh, Jeff, you mentioned that you were a huge data analytics, data science, and overall technology nerd. That's par for the course with being a chief data officer. Tell me about what it means to be a technology nerd. What, what technologies interest you most? What are you working with most on a regular basis? My current passion in technology is uh, actually building computers. So I thought I didn't think people did that anymore. You would think that, but again, like pandemic, like I was home a lot, like I wanted to do more things with technology, experimented with, you know, running some, some data mining things at home, playing with some stuff, some technology. I don't want to say Bitcoin, but we can move past that. But also like, you know, video games and like just multimedia stuff. I really wanted to get into photography to take more pictures of my two-year-old, get more into video editing. So I actually spent a lot of the end of last year designing a computer and getting the um, the parts together because there was a huge shortage of parts. And just last week finished building this monster. And this is the first thing that I've done on this that I would consider to be multimedia. I have to tell you this. I think you're a nerd. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Look, I used to build computers. I did. But uh, now they've become so uh, ubiquitous. It's like, yeah, I don't do it anymore. But so bringing it back to data, though, what technologies from a CDO or a CIO perspective are you, are you addressing on a regular basis? We are constantly battling with the data collection and storage and usefulness problem, um, both in my previous role and in my current role. Like we collect information on everything that we do, and we use that information to drive the, every single part of the business. I imagine many businesses are running up against these similar problems. The constraints of the data you're collecting is now, or at least it was, outpacing the ability to put it somewhere and then use it later. So we had hit this problem at Bentley in like 2017, where we were collecting so much telemetry on our users, even with reasonably modern cloud technology, we were hitting a wall. Same thing at AES moving data through the systems that we have, the, the things that we have that collect patient data and use to optimize trial stuff, we're hitting walls. Um, so I am very bullish now on data lakes 
the you know public cloud hosted data lakes are really where I, I think there's there's a lot of potential. Me personally, I think the future of data and analytics is going. Data lakes, it, yep. isn't that back to where we started? It is back to where we started in a way that scales and integrates infinitely as opposed to being on machines that you're always worried about are either going to melt or run out of storage. Now, is that the strategy you've laid out for AES? It's the strategy we are laying out. Again, I've been here for about three hours. <laughs> um, so we're building yeah, that right. strategy now. We are building a cloud-first, mobile-first, cloud-forward strategy. The team's very excited about this. I think it's going to be hugely impactful. This is definitely the strategy that I pushed at Bentley in conjunction with our product teams and with our development staff and our technology groups. But we became a technology cloud juggernaut as far as the systems that we had rolled out. They were always the next level of system, the cutting edge thing. We were using event hubs before that was a big thing. We were using Databricks before Databricks became a big thing people talked about. That is where this is going to go. It's those edge, large capacity, cloud data scalable systems that give you actionable ways to get to your information. Because that's, that's the hardest problem. You can collect millions and millions of records on your universe of users and customers every day. You can do that in any system. But once you start adding that up across weeks and across months, you're looking at billions of data points to go analyze. And how do you make that actionable? How do you make that insightful for people? This is interesting. As you finish up Bentley Systems, you're heading into AES, very similar roles, I would imagine, for the most part. But you set out the strategy, as you mentioned, in Bentley. Now you're coming in here and, and you're going to implement a similar strategy with AES. So what are some of the first steps? What do you find you to start with? And the reason I asked that latter part of the question is I see many of the clients I'm dealing with, you know, I'm dealing with data swamps. So do you have a swamp? Is that where you're starting? I mean, I don't know if you want to say. We have an overgrown and reasonably unkempt forest or garden. We have lots of disparate data. It's not wet and smelly. It just needs some organization and curation. We have hundreds of input systems from clinical trial management systems to recruitment systems, marketing systems, operational scheduling systems, they span anything you can think of, right? We are at our core, a marketing and recruitment organization to bring patients into trials. We are an operational organization to run those trials as efficiently as possible. And then ultimately we are a data and data-driven organization to figure out how to optimize those trials, optimize schedules, optimize marketing, get, get all of that moving. I mean, what are your, some of your first steps? You got to have some first steps. I think so. you come in, what are the first steps? Very, very much so. The first step here was getting a handle on the data landscape, what we had and how it worked today. So that was the first thing that I dug into over the first couple of weeks that I was here. What systems move data around? How do they get moved around and who uses that as an endpoint? Personally, I find working backwards from those endpoints always helps me figure out one is, is what's there being used successfully, right? But then you can trace that back to how that system evolved over time. You can certainly list out an inventory, every system you have that collects data anywhere. And that could be a huge, you know, Visio diagram and arrows and things. There's not a lot of intelligence that tells you though, why things were done and how they work together. But you go through your reporting 
landing pages and figure out what reports are the most used reports, kind of work backwards from that, figure out where those things are, are good, where there's pain points, take that step backwards. You'll eventually get to that Visio diagram that's gigantic and confusing, but then you have the knowledge of where that data is used. That's how I at least jumped into this to get there. I needed to go from zero to a hundred miles an hour very quickly. So that seems like it worked pretty well this time. I got to believe you're still in the honeymoon period right now. Yeah. I'm in the period now, I think, where I, I believe I know there's the, those four quadrants of knowledge. And I'm in the one that's like really dangerous where I know enough to be dangerous, but I don't know what I don't know, but I think I know more than I do. When I refer to the honeymoon, the one thing that I, th- I think with any organization this happens, the next stage is you say, all right, I, I've got the landscape, you know, I, and I've even got di- desired state. And then you're going to hear a lot of, well, this is the way it works, man. This is the way it always This is. is, this is, I mean, this is every morning. My conversation is this is the way it works. This yeah. is the way scheduling works. This is the way we move data. This is the, the tool set that we use for this. How are you going to tackle the culture and the politics? Because to be honest with you, that's some of the hardest stuff to get through. It is. And I, I just had this team meeting two days ago on Wednesday. We went through all of this. We answered these tough questions. One, I have a great team of people that are now part of the teams underneath me, and they are desperately trying to make things successful in what they're using now. They're doing a great job moving things forward with what they have as they go. And I don't plan on changing a lot of the fundamentals of what we're doing. What I plan on doing is implementing some strategies that should free them up. There's a lot of work that we do today that we do it because, like you said, like we've always done it that way. Having someone come in with a fresh, completely white landscape of what that looks like now, you can poke at those things and say, well, we, we do do this now. If we change this to something else, we can free up four hours a week of your time or 10 hours a week of your time, or in some cases, 20, 30, 40 hours a week of your team member's time we can save by doing these things. We've already had a few successes like this, you know, being able to come and look at those analytical systems from the endpoint backwards. Right? We have a ton of analysts, data scientists and statisticians who help figure out the feasibility of a study and what we need to get in certain parts of, we call it the funnel of getting people into the beginning of a trial and they'll fall out uh, different areas of the funnel as you go down because they have you know, different criteria that exclude them or they, they don't meet certain you know, protocols in the trial. What's the back math that you use to fill that funnel? Those teams spend a ton of time pulling information, as you might expect. And they pull that information from all kinds of different systems. One of those systems was a legacy Oracle system that we have that I'm sure was put in place when I was in middle school. And (laughs) the analysts spend a ton of time running SAS and Talon scripts to extract data out of that. And it's very slow and cumbersome. And there's 15 of these analysts and they might run these five or six times a week, each individually. And it might take them 40 minutes to pull that data out. By looking at that objectively though, from the larger picture of like, where do these get used? How does that work? We have a job now that once a night dumps all of that data. It takes the entire hit at night. It now takes them 90 seconds to get that data every time they need it. I got it. I got it. Look, I I understand your process. Sounds like it's going well. I do find that again, those politics and culture are, you know, some of the hardest things to to wade through. Everybody's great with new ideas as, as long as it doesn't address or deal with their specific area. Uh, then it's like, well, wait a second. My area is fine. But Joe's area, you better pay attention. He needs to be completely redone. So my question, though, kind of goes back. I'm getting in the weeds myself. 
Now everybody's remote. You're starting a new role two months into it. How are you trying to develop those personal connections that typically you'd walk, you know, you'd get a, a cup of coffee with somebody and you'd be able to bridge those gaps. How are you doing that today? Yeah. So this was a problem in 2020 entirely, just keeping team cohesiveness. This is a huge problem for me now as the leader of a new team. In my previous job and in this role, use Microsoft Teams quite a lot. And uh, we have implemented for many meetings, not all of them because it becomes completely unhinged if you do this all the time, but we do a lot of video conversations to get connections there, which I think is, is helping that face-to-face, -face, you know, that those micro emotions that you see people have, right? It really gets you like working better, talking to people. And we're trying to have more short, brief meetings to discuss topics, right? More casual conversations. Again, two months here, like, what do I know? And how is this working? I have no idea. But I've also tried, you know, at least once a week, scheduling four or five one-on-ones with people that are somewhere in my organization tree now to build up some kind of rapport. And I can pretty much talk to anybody about anything for any length of time. So I think that's working pretty well, but it is certainly an effort to build up those interpersonal relationships being locked in your own office at your house all the time. Going back, is it cloud or, or is it more of a hybrid environment by which you're going to drive this new data lake? I am a the right tool for the right job kind of person. I do not want to mandate a solution or a solution stack ever. If there is a great on-premise solution that we can leverage that is like the answer to a problem, I am on board. That said, I don't think there is a scalable on-premise solution anymore that can compete with the agility and the scalability and the resiliency of real cloud forward technology. My nightmare scenarios are our on-premise databases and our on-premise data systems crashing and having to be recovered or failing, or look at like the disaster situation right now in Texas. You know, the, the, it snows four inches and the power goes out for seven days. That's hugely impactful for everyone's lives. You know, obviously the people in Texas, it's a complete disaster and that's just a nightmare. But if you were a tech company in a microcosm of that somewhere else where it wasn't as much of a interpersonal disaster, for some businesses, that could be unsustainable, right? So having that cloud resilient, geo-replicated environment, that has to be the future for any organization that deals mostly with distributed groups. And again, like we're talking about sites that we maintain trials at all around the world, hundreds of sites. So we are as distributed as possible as far as our technology interconnected needs. On-premise for that becomes very strained. But in fairness, uh, companies have been doing on-premise for you know ATMs, big size, size companies for, for years with high availability. Why now do you say uh, it's got to be cloud or uh, you're going to press your ability to scale? If you invest in the locations and the infrastructure and the power management and the backup power and the air conditioning and the people and the staff to run those organizations and the real estate, you can make your own essentially private cloud to go be as HA and as DR as possible. Uh, we did that in my previous role. We had you know DR between Philadelphia and Watertown, Connecticut. We had a fiber line laid. We had massive redundancy in all the server rooms absolutely totally worked. We would rather deploy, certainly in my current role and, and Bentley as well, 
we would rather deploy those resources to our core competencies, right? Driving things that make us better at the business that we do. Our core competency was not running our own data center. We were very good at it and we had very good people, but those people can be deployed to improve the solutions that we have that make us money. So in your case, are you going to move everything to cloud or is this going to be a case where you move certain uh, use cases or workloads to cloud and then leave others on premise? Oh yeah, almost certainly it will be hybrid for a while. Where it makes sense, currently my biggest pain points are data scalability. And it's very hard to scale out with data analytics in a way that makes sense anymore. Like, I don't think that I can make my own and manage my own Hadoop clusters or my own Spark clusters and do that in a way that I would be comfortable that like we're doing it the right way. But I can spin up cloud vendors versions of that let them manage the logistics and I pay them for the consumption of that service. Do you worry about vendor lock-in? I do. I do very much. I've gotten burned in the past very badly. Vendor lock-in and vendor deprecation of services is a constant fear of mine. What have you learned so that you can avoid that in the future? My biggest takeaway is don't be the earliest adopter of the technology and never be the largest customer of someone's service. Those I think are paradigms that everyone can take away from that. If you are the largest user of some company's microservice of something, and that proves to be, you know, not profitable for them or an issue and they deprecate that service, you almost certainly will not find a replacement service. So I try to focus on things that are reasonably ubiquitous, that are common, you know, services that we could switch vendors if we needed to. I don't want to get tightly integrated into a service that might get deprecated, that has no replacement, but for any of the services that we can you know, shift around, fantastic. I am very much into going with one partner and doubling and tripling down on them as long as I have that kind of safety net. When I work with a lot of uh, clients, one thing that they express in terms of concerns to me is, um, or multiple things around vendor lock-in, but they're also worried about the cloud lock-in in that they move to a cloud and then if they want to move, it's like easy to get on the cloud, hell to move from one cloud to another. Do you see that as a concern and how, um, how are you rationalizing or providing some serenity in your approach in terms of moving to one cloud or another? So what I was trying to implement at Bentley, we will eventually get to at AES someday. Again, we are like in the infancy of this journey to the cloud here. We had a multi-cloud approach to all of our data systems, or we were at least working towards a multi-cloud approach where we had data replicated across multiple public clouds. And the services that we set up were actually fault tolerant to one of those clouds actually going down. It would fail over to the other public cloud. The extension of that is that if we had to completely shift off of a vendor, we have that infrastructure built as a backup on a different cloud. So essentially you've got two different clouds uh, by which uh, if worse came to worse, I presume that you could use your uh, high availability or you know your technology so you could switch clouds and, and use like the cloud is currently the backup as a primary in the future if you want. Exactly, yeah. I am all about abstracting as much of a system from all the other systems as possible. 
you can imagine what my database systems look like and my analytical systems with the level of abstractions between them. We take that up a level and then try to put that into the technology as well. So I know it's early on, but you, you know, you're already getting the landscape as you talked about earlier, you've determined desired state. What is your plan to get to desired state as quickly as humanly possible while still running the day-to-day business? We, are working on a plan as a team right now to figure out what that keep the lights on value of time has to be. And then we are going to allocate, you know, whatever time we can to implementing capital projects to grow the company. Um, but then also have a dedicated set of time locked off for this kind of like lift and shift upgrade to either modern tools or modern cloud technology. Does AES, do you have DevOps in usage today or is that something you're implementing as well along the way? Yeah, so I, I'm i learning about the, the DevOps system we have now. I, we do have a DevOps strategy for development. We partner with a lot of technology vendors, so I'm, I'm learning how these relationships work and exactly what's in-house versus what's not right now. So many moving parts in technology and with so much security risk that you know, we are absolutely applying the DevSecOps approach to everything that we do to be nimble, to be accurate, and to be safe with all those systems. Fair enough. All right. Well, this has been good information. If you were able to summarize, you've got this chief information officer position. Where does that position begin and end as far as the the new company? I mean, where do you feel like, hey, this is my responsibility. This is what I'm going to get done. This is where I'm going to count on others. Can you give us a little bit of information there? Yeah, so the CIO role I find to be a really fascinating role depending on the organization that you talk to. So some CIO roles are very just, you know, keep the infrastructure, keep the CRM system running, keep the bits and boxes moving, and and that's basically it. And then you have other CIOs that are very operationally focused with projects and with tasks and things. And then there's this smaller subset, which I feel like I accidentally walked into, and I, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but now looking back on it, like, I'm very excited about this. I'm going to end up being the the combination of those plus the analytical and information stuff will be much more prominent in what we do. Again, as a data-driven company that heavily relies on analytics and statisticians and making sure that operationally we're using data to drive how we do business, it has already fallen on me to take a leadership role in not only running the information systems, but applying the information in those systems to better the business. So that's really where I see that role going for me. The end point of that role is going to be information management, information collection and delivery, but then also information synthesis and insights. So the one thing in all of this that you've not mentioned is AI, artificial intelligence. Does that have a role (laughs) in your new position? I have a history in this. I have a degree in machine learning. I am there with the concepts. We use a lot of machine learning and a lot of algorithms and a lot of statistics and data mining science to do our business today. We don't use a lot of AI today in the core sense that I think when most people hear AI, they go use that in like a, the the chat bot is going to answer all of my questions dynamically because it learned how to speak you know this language and incorporate everything else. We are not there yet. I've already started having several conversations with people over chatbots and AI already. And there's so much more that we can leverage with normal 
statistics, normal analysis, normal diagnostic data processes, and then just edging into more advanced machine learning and more advanced data science. Being in the AI business, it's not magic. That's the one thing I struggle with a lot of, you know, they, they want you to come in and put in AI and it's supposed to start tomorrow. You got to train it. It's just software around statistics, as you mentioned. So it's interesting. How do you pick the technologies that you ultimately end up with? Like technology can be a religion. I've been in the data religion before, by example, but anyway, you get it. Well, so and I'm going to interject here. It also goes to the information overload. Jeff, right? How do you parse out and how do you, with your experience, your knowledge, all of that, how do you parse out the right direction to go? Yeah. So I love talking to other technology leaders any way that I can uh, through LinkedIn, through, you know, a hundred years ago, and we used to actually meet people at networking events through <laughs> any kind of communication that I can to get just a constant influx of their opinions. I love talking to people and learning about what they're doing that works and then thinking of ways to apply what they've done in the use cases that I have going forward. Uh, it's proven very successful for me in the past with picking technologies, you know, knock on wood. Once you talk to people that you can build up that network of trust, you know, they're not going to tell you things that they're using that are these crazy mad science experiments that aren't going to work. You generally build like a robust collection of this worked for me for these reasons. You kind of be able to suss out what's good and what's bad. And then you can apply that going forward. Outside of any hand-to-hand -hand combat, are you, um, where are you getting the information? Do you, is there any tech journals you read any that you could shed some light on for the, for our listeners? I am a big fan right now of a lot of the articles that Gartner puts out and Forrester. Um, I kind of consume those a lot. I read everything that HBR puts out, but I've managed to somehow curate my LinkedIn feed um, to be a constant stream of just very good articles published by people in my network that give me really good analytical information. Um, I've also curated a really nice podcast list that I can listen to people talk about these these kind of things going forward. The, the top of that list being this podcast. <laughs> well, thank you. I love you now, Jeff. What podcast do you like the most? Tell, tell me that because sometimes on this podcast, we're always trying to balance on how much, how technical do we go versus how do we keep it entertaining, right? It, it, there, there's an element of both. And, I, and sometimes I got to tell you, Jeff, a lot of people like the entertainment more than they like technical background. <laughs> it's, it definitely has to be a balance. So in a 20 or 30 or 40 minute podcast, you've got to keep people's attention for 15 minutes and have five single minutes of interjecting something that's very, very useful in their lives. Again, like I said, I'm not making this up. I love this podcast for this kind of topic. Analytics on Fire is another one that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Very good for like that kind of thing with Miko Yuck. Now you're putting me on the spot and I've actually got to think of these. There's a uh, podcast called Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. Uh, the Data Chief is very good. Data Crunch. Hey, I want to pivot unless there's anything else you want to say on the CIO role, uh, I want to pivot on an article you wrote uh, entitled Fighting the Infodemic. Yeah, and let's spin the wheel on the car and make that right turn. Right. Jeff wrote this article. I thought it was a good article. Very well written. Fighting the Infodemic. Uh, the first question I have is very simple. There must have been something that compelled you to write that article. 
when I wrote this article, this was, I believe, um, maybe March of last year, I think. This was completely the result of two very, very discreet things that happened in my life. My wife is a physician in Philadelphia, and she was getting pulled into a lot of, you know, ICU covering shifts, COVID ICU shifts. And all we were getting from various places was an endless stream of contradictory information. Newscasters were saying things that didn't make any sense. The hospitals were putting out information that didn't make sense. The governments were putting out the state government, federal government, global governments. Everything was contradictory. And it was creating this angst in our life that was just all encompassing. It was, it was surreal. That was, was one thing in a box. And then in Bentley at that time, we were beginning to react to COVID as it, you know, consumed the world. And we were finding that inside the company, people were trying to be very helpful, but they were unintentionally spreading so much disinformation about tone of business, about factual things that we thought were going happening in different places people's opinions on what those facts were, were becoming very distorted. You take all of that. And then at the same time, like, you know, you go on the, your Facebook feeds and all of your social media feeds and everything on there was just nonsensical information. I realized that everyone was consuming bad information everywhere with no governance, no way to work your way through that infodemic. And ironically, at the same time, the WHO was actually publishing information on COVID. They also published a paper where they coined the phrase infodemic in response to all of the global misinformation on COVID. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And they declared, and this is from your article, but it's from their article, which is they define infodemic as an overabundance of information, some accurate and some not that makes it hard for people to find trustworthy sources and reliable guidance when they need it. Which is doubly and triply a frightening situation when you are in a global pandemic and you need accurate information. We've had infodemics, I think, for years in different areas. This one just happened to be incredibly dangerous because people didn't have proper information on masks. And as science changed around masks, Right, where did that information come from? On vaccines, on what was safe for interactions. It all became very confusing, dangerously fast. And then we ended up here. So what do you do to, to rid through all that uh, misinformation? I like to interrogate all of the sources I get for fact-based information and at least try to find that information verified in one other source. So just take a moment if you find something that you find to be an interesting number that is going to change your view on the world, try to be thoughtful enough to say, what if that number is wrong? Or what if that statement or statistic is incorrect? Where else can I back that up? What do you do for fun, Jeff? In quarantine, my wife is uh, 37 weeks pregnant now. Um, and we have a two-year-old. We don't do a lot anymore for fun <laughs> other than survive. We spend as much time as we can outside in safe areas, like our very large local park and things. And then as a family unit, we try to just be active. I'm a bit of a Peloton freak now. So if you want to have another 45-minute discussion on something, uh, we can talk about Pelotons for a while and the data-driven universe that is connected fitness. All right, two um, minutes on Peloton because I've been looking at bikes. I haven't got one. Uh, I do a lot of uh, Insanity and P90X, and I've got a treadmill that I, I go outside and run, and I've, I've thought about this. Why Peloton? 
I find there's a couple reasons here. The one to start with the connectedness of the application to all of the metrics that you use to drive fitness is just perfectly done. They did a great job with the UI. They did a great job with the hardware and they did a great job integrating all of it together. So as a person who is data-driven and reasonably fitness-driven, I love being able to track over time my output against a workout by time, by instructor, my heart rate, the energy that I created, the wattage that I created, and seeing all of that graphically over any kind of dimension that I need to. You can dump it all out with APIs into Tableau dashboards or ClickSense dashboards or whatever you want, do your own analytics on it. It is just hugely interesting from a data perspective and from a focused fitness perspective. I think that's a perfect spot then to wrap this up. They have matched exercise with data, which is your perfect home then because you're back to data. You get all the goodies and the analytics and the, and the... It always it always comes back to that. All right. Hey, look, man, uh, anything we didn't get to that you wanted to get to as we're wrapping up here? I think we're good for now. Well, listen, Jeff, thank you for being on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. you spent a, a long time with us. And, and again, I got a lot of information, CIO, data. Again, you have many of the same interests that I do. So uh, thank you for being here and sharing. Thank you very much for having me. This was a great conversation. And I look forward to listening to your podcast in the future. Well, thank you so much for being a listener. And for all you listeners out there, I thank you as always. And uh, hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. We do listen. Jeff's here. He's a testament to that. Uh, I wouldn't have got to meet uh, Jeff without that. So uh, again, reach out to us. Thank you. And I will see you on the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out.